Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 27 this evening. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppress you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is not, no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Let's now ask for God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Oh, Father, how we do pray that You would purify our hearts by Your Spirit, that You would uh, grant us the grace to know Your will, to uh, know what it is that You require of us, what is well-pleasing in Your sight, and that You would grant that we would order all of our lives around this, May it be that the word, that your word would shine forth to make these things known to us. And may it be, O Lord, that you would grant us hearts of, of love for you always. Lord, accomplish these things through the preaching of your word, we do pray, uh, knowing that uh, if the preaching of the word is not accompanied by your spirit, then it will profit nothing. Uh, therefore, Lord, please do grant your spirit along with the preaching. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Usually when uh, people think about prayer, a lot of times there are questions about things like whether or not God will hear our prayers, whether or not God will answer our prayers. And usually there is this assumption that, you know, if God gives us the things that we're asking for, this will be beneficial to us. 
uh, in, you may be able to think about times when you have prayed for something fervently and perhaps you did not receive the thing that you prayed for. And it can be uh, difficult sometimes to understand why God would not uh, grant to you the thing that you prayed for. Uh, however, uh, one of the things that's wrapped up in this assumption is that uh, the, the thing that you are requesting is in fact beneficial to you and that it is in fact being asked according to the Word of God. Now, this, this may be the case. There are all kinds of reasons why uh, God may choose in His grace and in His kindness uh, not to answer a particular prayer. However, it ought to be recognized that there are times when God's people ask for things that are inherently sinful, where the request itself cannot be answered because to do so would actually constitute a judgment. You think of what uh, James says in James chapter 4, the beginning of that passage. He says, the reason you do not have is because you do not ask. The reason you ask and do not receive is because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That is to say, God is not going to honor a prayer request that is made in sin. To, to, to hear a request that is, in fact, uh, sinful. Now, on the other side, you could even say that if God were to hear that request and grant it, which even what we'll see from this text is that actually does sometimes happen, that that is actually an act of judgment. It's actually an act of judgment. Now, think about that. We often think that if God hears our prayers, He answers our prayers, that is a good thing. But what I'm saying is that this passage teaches that there are times when God could hear a prayer, answer it, and that actually be God's judgment against a people. When a people asks persistently for something that is sinful, they are confronted about the sin of it, and yet they continue to ask, God may say, I will give you this sinful thing so that you will get, you will reap all the reward for, for this particular sin, and it will not be good. You think of, it's very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. There he describes the people who are turning away from God. They desire to worship uh, the creature rather than the creator. They begin to have des desires for all kinds of sins. And what does Paul say that God does in that situation? He says God gives them up. He, he just lets them go. He says if you want that, then you can have it. But that, that letting them have the thing that they are desiring is in fact an act of judgment. And something similar is in fact happening here. The people have persisted in asking for a king. And they have been told that in this particular context, the request for a king was sinful. Now, this has been, this has been told uh, very directly by Samuel. We, we saw it very directly and emphatically in chapter 8. The people are told once again here, and it will be repeated again very forcefully in chapter 12. So over and over again, in three different chapters, the people are directly confronted with the sinfulness of their choice. And yet, though they are told that the request is sinful, and it's, at some point they'll even actually acknowledge that the request is sinful, uh, God still grants the request. And the chapter that we have before us here, that this particular passage, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 is showing the way in which God actually did give them the thing that they requested. Not only that, he gave them the best version of the thing that they asked for. The very, very best version. Saul was the, the pinnacle of, what, of everything they were looking for. And God says, if you want a king like the nations, I will give it to you. I will even give you the best version, but it will not be for your good. It will be even as an act of judgment. Now, we will see that uh, God's grace abounds to his people even as they continue in their sin, uh, particularly in chapter 12, 
we'll see the, the ways in which God is still showing grace to his people, even in the midst of, of their sinful requests. There's even hints of that grace here as Samuel gives instructions for uh, the king and for the people of how they can even prosper in this situation. You know, the idea is that even now, even as you've rejected God, if you will but turn to him and obey him, things will go well with you. Samuel gives those sorts of instructions. And yet, overall, the passage is teaching that God does sometimes grant the things that people sinfully ask for. And therefore, the lesson to be learned is you must be careful what you ask for. You must be careful what you ask for. If you're going to pray to God for something, be sure that it is something that is asked according to the word of God and for the sake of the glory of his name. Now, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. Uh, first, Samuel's address to the people in, in verses 17 to 19, where we'll look at the sinfulness of the request as Samuel lays it out. Then the, the purpose of verses 20 through 24 is to show that the, that the request, God has actually answered it. So the, the answer of the request is given in verses 20 to 24. And then we're going to look at the, the conclusion in verses 25 to 27, which is the, uh, the obligations for the king. Uh, what are the implications? Um, what is required for godly living in, even in the midst of a, the situation where God grants a sinful request? What, what is the proper response of the people? So we'll look at this passage under those three headings. So first, the sinfulness of the request. Notice even before we really get into Samuel's description of the sin, notice uh, the setting comes in verse 17. Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Now, uh, this is important. It's important to, to understand what's happening here in light of what is, has happened in chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10. You remember that uh, in the, the previous uh, couple weeks, we've looked at the way in which Saul's been introduced, and we've seen a number of ways in which God has clearly shown that he has chosen Saul. And there were a number of, of really important providences that God had ordered such that it was clear that Saul was the one that was chosen. We've seen all the ways in which Saul... Uh, seems to fit what the people are asking for. He really is the best version of the king like all the other nations. He's from a noble family. He uh, appears to receive the word of God. He's taller than everyone, so he's a, a strong and, and mighty man. He then is equipped, as we saw last week. He's equipped with every gift that is needed for the execution of his office. God even gives him the spirit to help him uh, with regard to the, the execution of his office. He is, he's told, he's given a number of signs that are when they come to pass, he used to know that he's been chosen. All these things have been recorded. And the point is to, is to show in chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 16, that uh, God has chosen Saul. And he's even anointed uh, privately uh, by Samuel and declared to be the king, that he will be the king. And the purpose then of this particular passage in relationship to those is that this is where Saul is publicly chosen as king. So now the information was told to Saul. But now it's going to be told to all the people. And it's going to be done again in such a way uh, so as to show that it is, in fact, God's sovereign choice. Now, there is a, a particular significance of the people gathering at Mizpah as well. Uh, this city uh, seems to have become a very important city after the Battle of Aphek. You remember that battle is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And this is another hint that Shiloh has been destroyed, that the old place of worship where God's people had gathered, where the tabernacle stood, had been destroyed. And after that, Mizpah appears to become something of a political center. We see other cities that are, are important as well. Gilgal is, has become a place of worship. Ramah is significant in other ways as well. Uh, there used to be 
but before that, the destruction of Shiloh, God's people had rest from all their enemies. There was something of a centralization in terms of, in terms of the, the place you would wanted to, if you wanted to go see God, you would go to Shiloh. And now there is a fragmentation that has come. And just the very fact that they are gathering at Mizpah is more evidence of that. And so that is, that is the setting. So all the people then are gathered at Mizpah. And notice again, the main purpose of verses 18 and 19 in Samuel's address to the people before this public choice where, wherein God shows that he's chosen Saul, the main point, the main thing that he's saying is that uh, the request itself was sinful. That is the main thing that Samuel's saying. Now, the, the way in which Samuel shows the sinfulness of the request, you'll notice, this is very common in the prophets, it's very common in the Old Testament, it's very common really all over the scriptures. The main way this is done is by contrasting God's gracious actions and the people's sin. That is to say, the idea is that uh, God has done all these good things for you, and that is what makes this particular sin so bad. God has done this for you, and yet you've repaid that good with this kind of evil. And Samuel is saying, you know, it would be a one bad, it would be a bad thing in any point to ask for a king in the way that you did, to ask for a king in such a way that you are rejecting God. But what makes this particular sin so bad is that God is the one who brought you out of Egypt. God is the one who has, in fact, redeemed you. The more that God has done for you makes any kind of rebellion against him all the worse. Now, this is actually going to be developed even further in chapter 12, as Samuel will give uh, one last word to the people where he'll really drill this home. But the main summary point that he makes in verse 18 here is that uh, God has shown his grace, his mercy, his love to you by bringing you out of Egypt in the Exodus, and yet the people have rebelled against him. Now, the reason why <coughs> the Exodus is chosen as the, the great event, to, uh, as the kind of the culmination of, of God's grace, is because in the Old Testament, this actually was the case, that the, the high point, the climax of the redemption that God worked for his people in the Old Testament was the Exodus. That the highest act of salvation, the thing that becomes the paradigm for even other acts of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And in fact, we could even say that the, one of the things that the prophets do is as they describe the coming of the Messiah, they will describe the coming of the Messiah as a new Exodus. They'll say, you know, just as Moses did this, so too then the Messiah will do this, but it'll be even better. The, the Exodus becomes the paradigm of God's redemption for his people. And the point is, is that when God did that, when he brought the people out of Egypt, it, it showed definitively his love, his faithfulness to the people. And the implication then is that the only proper and correct response, the only natural, reasonable response at that point, if God has done all this for you, the reasonable response would be to love him, to love him in return. And what Samuel is saying is that by requesting a king, you have then rejected this God who has done so much for you. Now, just a reminder, this, uh, with regard to the sinfulness of the request for the king, uh, it, is not, it was not wrong for the people to seek kingship in general, as we as we looked at particularly um, in, in a number of, of points in 1 Samuel. Uh, the point, the, the thing that was wrong was asking for a king like all the other nations. And asking for a king like the other nations did entail an idolatrous rejection of God. So the idea is that God has been good to you, yet you have rebelled, uh, have rebelled against him. Now, this basic principle of a sin becomes worse if you have received something good from a person, 
You, you, you think about this uh, apart from God. Uh, you know, if, you're just, if you have a relationship with anybody and you do something bad to them, obviously there is a certain level of how, how bad that thing is. But then if the person that you, you treat badly had previously served you or given something good to you or done something for you, sacrificed themselves for you, well, that makes the act all the worse. And the, the point is, is that that's the, it's the same thing with God. Now, this basic principle is the reason why sinning in the New Testament, if you take the same sin of New Testament sin, you, you, someone sins in some way in the New Testament versus someone sins in the Old Testament eras, those eras, it's worse in the New Testament to perform the same act of sin as it would be in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes we think of, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, they were living under law. Now we're living under grace. And therefore, you know, our obligation to keep the law has been reduced because we're under grace. The reality is, is that that's not, not the case. We are under the law of Christ, as the Apostle Paul says. We do not pursue obedience to the law as our grounds for justification. But neither did the saints in the Old Testament. They didn't do that either. Uh, they were... They were obligated to recognize the salvation that God had provided for them in the Exodus, to put their faith in the coming Messiah, and to act in a way that corresponded to that. Now, we are required to recognize the salvation that has come in the Lord Jesus Christ and to live in a way that is consistent and corresponds to that. If it is a greater sin for someone to commit you know, some kind of act of rebellion against God in the Old Testament, and the prophets can say, the reason why this sin is so bad is because God saved you in the days of Moses and brought you out of, of slavery in those days and gave you this great land flowing with milk and honey, and yet you have rebelled against him. How much worse is it then if you commit the same rebellion against God? And now the word is not God has done that for you in the Exodus, but it is God sent his son for you. He sent his son to die for you, that you might be brought out of bondage to sin and Satan and death, to give you not just a land flowing with milk and honey that you might you know, live in it all the days of your life and then die, but to give you eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. For you to receive that from God and then to rebel against him is a highly aggravated sin. And that is what Samuel is saying here. The reason this is so bad is because there is the act itself, but there is the act in light of all of the gracious acts that God has done for you to this point. And brothers and sisters, so it is in, in every age for every person. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you could, you could spend an eternity thinking about all the great and marvelous things that God has done for you. All the great acts that God has done, the, the, the grace, the mercy, the love that he's shown for you, of which you could say even the least of those blessings, we're unworthy of them, even the least of them. And God has richly poured them out beyond our comprehension. Therefore, when we sin against him, it is, it is all the worse. The, the, it ought to be astounding that a people who have received so much could yet sin. And brothers and sisters, uh, this, this ought to humble you. Therefore, and even as you think about connecting this particularly to prayer, this is a good reason to be careful what you ask for. Not to make sinful requests. To think about whether or not the things that you are requesting for, from God are actually being done in light of the grace of God that's been shown to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is actually for the advancement of his kingdom, for your own holiness, for the, the conversion of others, 
whether or not it is in fact things that are consistent with the Word of God. Because to ask for sinful things today, in light of all that God has done, is in fact exceedingly sinful. And so Samuel says, this is what you've done. You have committed this great sin. And yet what we see in verses 20 to 24 is that God in fact does answer their prayers. He actually does grant their request. They told Samuel, make for us a king like all the nations. And so here, here he is to be chosen. Now, one of the things that you'll note is that uh, it is made clear that Saul is the one chosen be through the casting of lots. And the point is, that is being made is that uh, God is the one who has, is specifically uh, uh, choosing this particular king. So the principle is, is, as Solomon says in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. And therefore, you know, there's sort of this like uh, obviously uh, providentially guided event that there's this apparent, apparently random thing that's happening. And yet of all the, you know, the millions of people that could be chosen, there is this like perfect specimen of a king that is chosen apparently at random. And that is Saul. So that's what's happening in verses 20 to 24. And the point is, is that, you know, as you think about this in relationship to chapter 9, there were all these providential acts that were given. Those showed that Samuel, that Saul was in fact the king. Then there were all these signs that were given to, to Saul, again showing that God had actually chosen this one as the king. And then here we have the lots being cast, and it again shows that God had chosen uh, Saul. They will ask for a king like the other nations, and Saul was that person. Now, a problem emerges in verses 21 through 22, the second part of 2021. 20, and that is that Saul <coughs> cannot be found. He's hidden himself, uh, and then God tells the people where Saul is. And this uh, leads to a, an important question. Why was Saul hiding? Why, why was he not willing to show himself uh, and to receive this role of kingship? We've already seen, actually, that there's been some reticence that he's had to accept this role as king. You remember uh, last week in verses 14 to 16, Saul uh, fails to tell his uncle. His uncle had said, you know, tell me everything that Samuel told you. And obviously a, an enormous part of it, really the main part of it, was that he had been anointed as king over all of Israel as the very first king. And yet he fails to, to tell his uncle this. And uh, now he's also hiding himself when he is chosen before all of Israel. Uh, how are we to understand this? Is this to be taken as something positive or is it to be taken as something uh, worse? It may, it may appear, it, it, it may be arguable that you could say, well, he's humble. He's, he's not wanting to, you know, exalt himself, and so he's hiding himself among the equipment. And yet, uh, I think this ought to be taken as something worse. Uh, oftentimes, weaknesses can be masked, even sins can be masked, by a false claim to humility. And I think that's actually what's happening here. You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, Ahaz is told by Isaiah to ask for a sign from the Lord. And if you remember what, uh, what he says, is he's, he pretends to be pious in his disobedience, and he says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. He's, he's, he, so he disobeys a direct word from God by trying to claim that he is uh, being pious and not uh, putting the Lord to the test. And so the, the point is, is that there are things that can be done that may appear to be humble, but really it is just unbelief. And I think this is what's happening here. This may appear to be humility, and yet the real problem is that Saul is unwilling to step up to take responsibility as king. He has been called to this, and yet he is unwilling to take responsibility. And I, I think it's helpful. I think the reason why we are to see it this way is because you remember that the books of Samuel are meant to be a contrast between Saul and David. 
There is, on the one hand, the king like all the other nations, and on the other hand, there is the, the man after God's own heart. Those are the, the two basic ideas of kingship. And it's helpful to note that David is not like this at all. This is actually one of the main points at which David can be contrasted from Saul. Saul doesn't tell his uncle, he hides among the equipment. But what does David do when the people of God are threatened by a great and mighty enemy, namely Goliath, who terrifies everyone? He steps up and he says, the people of God are in need, and I am going to go out to fight this person knowing that God is with me. And we, when we read that particular story, we don't usually think that the, you know, the people's fear and unwillingness to step forward and to fight is humility. We just take it to be fear. And certainly David's willingness to step up and to take responsibility, his courage, is not meant to be understood as pride, even though in that, in that text uh, his brothers try to take it that way. We recognize that David was acting in courage. The, the point is that when God's people needed a leader to step up, David was willing to do it. Um, and this was, this was not on David's part sinful pride or overconfidence because he, he didn't believe that he was going to be, defeat Goliath merely because of his own strength. He, he said, uh, who, is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the, of the living God? The point is that he knew God would be with him. And this is the, the thing. When, when Goliath taunts him, he says, God is going to deliver you into my hand this day. And it was, in, it was his faith that enabled him to step forward and to take responsibility. He, didn't, he wasn't trusting in his own strength. He knew that he was much weaker than Goliath, that if, if it was just a matter of a, a, a strength competition or, or ability in arms that he would lose, and yet he knew that God was with him, and he trusted in God. Now, you contrast that with Saul. It's important to keep in mind the context here. This is really the kind of faith that Saul should have had. Remember, he's been anointed by Samuel. He's been given signs that were meant to show him that he really was the one chosen. And Samuel has even said, when all these things happen to you, you are to recognize that God is with you. You're to recognize that, which means now there's an, there's an obligation on Saul to recognize that that is the word of God. The word of God, God is with you. And therefore, you are to act as a king insofar as God has given you the spirit to equip you to be a king. That is the word of God that has been given to Saul. If he believed that word of God truly, he would have stepped up and taken responsibility. He, he would have stepped up and said, I am called to be the king. I may be weak, but God has told me he's going to be with me. Therefore, I'm going to do it. I see that the people of God are in need, and I am going to do that for, the, for their sake and to help them. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, the reason... I'm going into this in a little bit more detail, is because this is, a, this is especially relevant for us today to consider, uh, as especially addressing the men a little bit more directly. Uh, one of the great sins of men in probably every age, but, I, uh, but especially in this age, is the failure to, to step up, to take responsibility, to, to use the authority that has been given uh, to them for the sake of the benefit of others. And this is the sin of Saul. This is, this is one of the, the great problems in our society today. Uh, men are called to lead. They are called to protect. They are called to provide. And if you say it another way, men are simply called to be men. This is what it means to be, uh, to, to be a, a man. Not, not to take authority or responsibility for the sake of lording it over others, but for the sake of caring for others, sacrificing yourself in order to protect others. Now, in today's world, uh, we have the, the, uh, the, the cancer of feminism is, is reigning, and we are told in this situation that men who lead, who, who 
take responsibility and who use authority, who are in leadership positions that they are toxic. This is where we get the phrase toxic masculinity. And on the other hand, we are told that women are to lead in every situation. And what this has led to in our own culture is that men are uh, emasculated, uh, they are lazy, they are purposeless very often, and women are uh, often proud, uh, not submissive. They uh, reject and scoff at the idea of men needing to provide for them and care for them. And the uh, result has been the uh, great decline of our country, and if it doesn't turn around, it will lead to the destruction of our country. There is a need for those who are men to step up and to be men. And so just speaking to you directly, if you are, you're a man and, you, and you're in this room, you're in, the, in this congregation, you are called to be a leader. You are called to step up and you are called to take responsibility. You are called to care for and protect, to provide for the women and children that God has placed in your lives. Now, if you're ahead of the home, this especially applies to you. You are called to protect your wife. You are called to care for your wife. You are called to provide for her. You are the leader in the home, and you must act as such. If, and, and if you have children, of course, as, as a, a father, you are to do this. But e even apart from that, e even apart if you are single, you think of your extended family, caring for your mother, uh, caring for perhaps sisters or nieces or nephews that, that need you. Uh, this is what you are called to do, such that the idea is when there is a need, those around you, where it is natural for you as a man to take the, 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 the responsibility to step up as a leader, you are called to do that. You are called to do that. And this world needs more men who will act like that. Even further, uh, this, the, the church needs men who will act like that. And this is not to be done, again, in your own strength. The, the idea is that you are to, to look to the example of David, not trusting in yourself. Perhaps there's a, a fear of acting. There's a difficulty in various situations. But what are you to do? You're to trust. God is going to be with me. God has called me to it. I'm going to step up and to be a man. Uh, there is uh, an exhortation that Paul gives at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the last chapter there. And in his final exhortation, he says a number of things. He says, uh, you must watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. Now, the word for be brave could more literally be translated be men. It, it really is like the, the root is men. You are to be, be a man. Be a man, step up, take responsibility. Where you are weak, ask God for strength. And then in faith, act for the sake of others. Now, that, that is what you are called to do. That, that is what you are called to do as a man. That's what Saul failed to do. And that's what so many in our society are failing to do today as well. Uh, now, uh, it's important to note just a, a little bit further in terms of the, this, uh, the, the dimension of Saul with his unbelief, it's important to note that this must be done in faith. We know that, that, that Saul's problem here is that he did not believe. He did not believe the word of God that told him that he was to be the king and that God would be with him. That, that was the thing that he failed to believe. And his lack of faith here causes him to, uh, to reject his authority, to, to, to uh, fail to take responsibility in this regard. And yet, what we often see in those who have such unbelief is that there's actually a vacillation between um, failing to step up and then on the other hand then becoming a tyrant when you actually get authority. And there's just, and with unbelief, you can only have a vacillation between those two things. The reason is because if you're not looking to God in the midst of your weakness, there's only two ways you can view yourself. You can view yourself as unworthy and unable to handle the authority 
that has been placed before you, at which point you'll act like Saul is here. And on the other hand, if you believe yourself to be great and mighty and strong and able to, to conquer all things through your own strength, well, that's going to lead you to pride. And you're going to go simply from uh, being fearful on the one hand to being a tyrant on the other. And it is important to note with regard to this dimension that this is exactly what happens with Saul. If you remember, just in terms of moving forward in the story, Saul is, seems to be terrified to become king now. But what happens after David defeats Goliath? He's persecuting David. He's putting the priests of God to death. He's berating his son because he says, look, if you're, if you're going after David, you're going to lose the kingdom yourself. He does everything he can to grab at the control that he, that he thinks is his by right. Once he becomes comfortable with himself being the king, all of a sudden, he, he exactly fulfills what was warned about in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That is to say, he becomes a tyrant just as Samuel predicted that he would. You can only go from one to the other. You can only go from being fearful and not stepping up to becoming a tyrant. Where, where do you get the godly authority? You get it by acting forward in faith, by recognizing your own weakness, not, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, recognizing your own weakness, but then trusting God will be with you and then acting even, even if it is difficult to act. That is the way towards godly authority and leadership. And that is the way in which godly men are to act. And this is what Saul failed to do. And it is what David is a very good picture of. He is, in fact, in this way, the man after God's own heart. And so in this way, Saul, uh, Saul really does have all of the, the gifts outwardly. We, we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks. But here it's emphasized again in verses 23 through 24. Once they do, in fact, find him, he's taller than everybody. Uh, he, he looks the part. And Samuel then declares, there is none like him whom the Lord has chosen. The idea is all of you can see, obviously, Saul looks like a great king. He clearly has the qualities. We've even, we even saw last week that he's even be, he was even equipped by the Spirit uh, to be able to function this way. And uh, the people affirm, we've gotten what we want. And yet they miss the real problem with Saul, which is that he did not have faith. They missed that. They, they wanted someone who was a king outwardly. They got it. But what they did not have was a man who was truly obedient to God and who truly loved God with all of his heart. They got what they sinfully asked for. God gave that to him. And ultimately, as we know, it will prove to be a disaster. Uh, now, in verses 25 through 27, <coughs> Samuel concludes by dismissing the people and giving them some brief instructions about how they are to act how the king is, is to act. Uh, this really is, in a, ver in a lot of ways, uh, a, a gracious thing to do. The idea is that um, Samuel is still guiding the people. He's still guiding Saul, even though this is all contrary to, to God's revealed will, even though it's something that is displeasing to God in this way. And, you know, Samuel is still, uh, still working with them and still trying to uh, labor for the good of the, of the people as best he can. And we'll see that this is actually developed more in chapter 12, so we won't spend a lot of time on it here. Um, but then we have Samuel sends away the people, and then we see in verses 26 and 27, there are two different responses uh, to Saul that are recorded. There are first those who support Saul in verse 26, and this is commended. So even though it was sinful for the people to ask for a king like the other nations, once the king is given, there are people who are commended for following Saul and supporting them, uh, for supporting him. And then surprisingly, it may seem, Saul, who is going to be a disaster, as we've, as we've seen, has been, pro has been prophesied by Samuel, uh, 
even though that is in fact the case, <coughs> those who oppose him and kind of mock Saul and say, how can this man save us? They are actually declared to be worthless. They, they are scoffers. The word that is translated rebellion, uh, re rebels, could actually be translated as worthless men. Some other translations sometimes use that, that, this title in that way. The idea is that uh, it is uh, that it is wrong to uh, deny that Saul was, in fact, uh, the answer to the prayer that was given. Uh, and the reason, basically, for this negative judgment is simply to say that um, Saul really was a king like all the other nations. Everyone saw it. The only people who could deny it were people who just scoff at everything anyway. You know, there are always this, this sort of person in every age. There are people who just, you know, they just want to make fun of and scoff at everything. And what, what is being recorded here is that everyone recognized Saul, as a, as a king who looked the part, except for those who have a propensity towards, uh, towards scoffing uh, at everything. Now, this is instructive for us as we think about our duty to support a government that is increasingly given over to sin. Um, we can recognize that there are sins that are committed, that it may be even, uh, there may even be sinful decisions that are made to put certain people in power at various points, and yet uh, we are called to submit to the government. And here, even though Saul is going to be, in this sense, a disaster, um, the, the godly are commended for supporting him and doing the best they can. And this is even what, what Samuel does. Samuel is a good example. Uh, he continues to pray for the people. He continues to give direction to the king. He continues to seek the good uh, of the people as best that he can. And thus, with this passage, Saul is chosen as the king. This is, this is where he publicly is chosen for this role. Uh, none can deny it uh, that, uh, that God has given the people everything that they've wanted. There have been hints of his inadequacy, and these hints are found in the midst of a glowing description of a man who looks the part in every way. And this is a great warning. There could be situations where uh, it appears that you have gotten something that on the outside looks very good. But if it is not something that is good according to the word of God, it is to be rejected. It's, you are not to ask for those things. You are to be careful what you ask for. And it's important to recognize that above all else, as you think about the things that you need, the things that you are to ask for, you are to recognize above everything else that everything that you have really needed has been provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true king who provides for his people. And as you think about the need to have godly leadership, you think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, David was good in many ways, but he's nothing compared to Christ, who, as you, as you consider, did not back away, even as the cost of the redemption of his people was undergoing, suffering, even the wrath of God on the cross. He did not back away. He submitted himself to the will of God. And even in his weakness, he turns to God, asks for strength, is strengthened, goes to the cross, is, uh, is then uh, raised from the dead on the third day, and is exalted above all the kings of the earth. Brothers and sisters, do not put your hope in kings. Do not put your hope in princes. But look to Christ and pray in his name for the advancement of the kingdom and for the doing of his will. Uh, may it be that God would grant you the grace to have prayers that are pure, offered up in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for things that are acceptable to him. And may it be that God would uh, answer your prayers, not as an act of judgment, but as an act of grace. Uh, let's pray. Oh, Father, 
How we do pray that, that this passage would bear fruit in the lives of your people. Uh, Lord, we, we do pray that you would make us more like David and not like Saul, that you would make us even, even better, more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the new David, who is perfect in every way. Help us to, to, to do this, that when, particularly for the men in the room, that when, when we are fearful, uh, when we see the, the difficulty of acting and of assuming authority, uh, where it is ours to, to assume by, uh, by your good providence, that we would not be uh, afraid or that fear would not cause us to uh, fail to act, but that we, would rather, uh, that we would rather trust in you and yet act in faith. We do pray as well that you would keep us from uh, praying for things that are in fact sinful. We, we, we do pray that you would give us hearts that are content with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would not seek for other things from other lovers, but that we would find him to be the one who truly satisfies our soul. For Lord, we do ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, We'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats. And if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day, we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.